Great question. I think I'll answer it um, in a political way, but it's not <laughs> not in a political way, really. I, it's what I truly believe that I think you cannot all of it together. You have to understand. So everything from the material composition, which I think you're referring to, say the atomic or molecular um, composition, all the way up through the macro structure. So my research group and my research is focused on understanding the links from the nanometer scale up to the meter scale or the full organism um, or full application. However, I never forget and I try to bring to my students never forgetting kind of the importance of the atomic and molecular structure, but even below the nanometer length scale. Um, so I, I think nature is really does a, a great job of of using limited elements and limit, limited molecular constructs to develop a rich array and rich library of microstructures and mesostructures to enable different functions. So I, I, I'm particularly interested in that myself. Um, however, you cannot forget any of that, those build, compositional building blocks. Um, they, they do play really critical roles in enabling the definition of those microstructures. Um, so, so that's the at least the direct answer to your to your question. Um, with that being said, I think focusing on the the morphology and the the microstructure of different natural materials is a really powerful avenue right now because it allows us to think about developing more sustainable processes and how to use materials in different ways and reconfigure them um, to make a more sustainable materials world. Um, that's a great question. Um, so. At, at the heart of it, um, there are different, or what we're learning is there are different um, compositions or even slightly different structures. If So if you want to capture prey versus climbing, there are some different ways to balance the, the three components of adhesion. Like I said, the surface, the near surface material properties and the geometry in nature, like the chameleon or the spiders does this in different ways relative to a gecko. So they will use very similar mechanisms often. So van der Waals forces is often the, the bond that is most commonly used in nature. It doesn't have to be always that bond, but it's very commonly used just because it's so ubiquitous. But how they distribute and use those van der Waals bonds is, is a little different between say the chameleon and the, the spider and the, the gecko. Um, for example, in, in, the, in the gecko, a, a lot of its time is actually spent fairly stationary. Um, whereas um, in, the, in a spider, it may be trying to use its, its web-like features to capture something very dynamic. And so some of the time scales and the, the, the rate scales involved in the materials have to be a little different and they, they will mm. change the structure a little bit differently for those different functions. Yeah, so let me um, ask, I mean, the first one, and I think you mentioned it, is really buckling and surface buckling. I don't know if you would like, I mean, we've worked on that quite a bit, and um, I can talk about that as, a, mm -hmm. as an example, or would you like me to move beyond that example? Yeah, it's okay. You can do whatever you want. Feel free. Okay. Yeah, so I think surface um, wrinkling and buckling, um, so for the listeners, let me describe what, what this is. Um, so if you have a thin a thin sheet um, and just press on it from like a for example a sh thin sheet of paper 
and you press on it from the edges, the paper doesn't stay flat. It'll bow up or bow down. It'll bend up and down. It prefers to bend rather than actually compress or become uh, shorter. Now, if you take that thin sheet of paper and attach it to a piece of rubber or something soft, a piece of foam, and compress it, the paper still wants to bend up, but the, the foam underneath wants to compress. And so this gives rise, it'll actually find a compromise and it'll wrinkle and set up a, a whole series of wrinkles that are very uh, precisely defined in terms of its their size and, um, and curvature. And um, this phenomenon is, from an engineering point of view, when we were when I was being trained as a civil engineer many many years ago, you were taught to avoid the the wrinkling or buckling. It's often called buckling mode um, because it's an unstable form. Okay, um, you want to make your material so they don't buckle. That's what we were taught as engineers. However, um, coming back to your question, nature has used buckling in many ways to define very functional surfaces. Um, one of the examples, um, it's not so functional maybe, or we don't realize the function so much, but it's our fingerprints. Our fingerprints are actually made and develop in a, in a way where the outermost layer, the epidermis actually starts being um, compressed relative to the, um, the basal layer or the underlying layer. And this gives rise to the formation of our fingerprints. Um, now in nature, they also use buckling to define many other um, um, functional forms. In fact, a, a project that we're working on right now um, with um, Michelle Milankovic and Professor Beverly Glover. Um, professor Beverly Glover is a professor at, at Cambridge University and Professor Michelle Milankovic is a, a professor at Geneva University. Um, we're understanding how surface wrinkling or buckling is actually used on the, on the outer layers of flower petals to help attract um, certain insects, so um, bees, for example, because of their optical properties and special optical properties, or even on the scales of certain lizards, um, as Professor Milankovic is studying, the wrinkles will develop to give rise to different diffractive colors and for different purposes. Um, so this is what I'm coming to is this, this underlying feature of buckling or surface wrinkling. As engineers, we are taught to avoid. However, nature has found ways to exploit this for optical properties or adhesion properties. And so our group, as well as many others around the world, have used surface buckling and features to actually make functional materials. And not only are they very functional, but they are actually made in a, a very um, convenient method or way that can actually minimize the amount of energy that goes into creating um, material structures. So there's other benefits as well as their function um, in terms of the energy used to, to create these um, surfaces. So I, I think that's a nice example um, um, to, the, to the question of how the, something unexpected yeah. maybe turns out to be something really nice. That's wonderful. I don't know if you have any other examples as well uh, beyond that. Maybe if you have. Yeah, uh, um, I can, um, I'm sure that we have a, oh, um, this is fairly specific to our research group, um, but, it, but it is a nice example of where many years ago, um, we were trying to place and develop a, a coding method for placing um, five nanometer nanoparticles inside of three nanometer polymer films. 
So if the nanoparticle is thicker than the nano, uh, the polymer film, how, where does it, how do you, how do you place that in there and how do you get it to be stable? When the students started working on this problem, um, only a few weeks after he um, was in the lab trying different processes, he started to discover that the nanoparticles would all form lines, um, very systematic lines. Um, and these lines um, seem to have very unique properties, uh, these lines of nanoparticles. Uh, so we've, since then, we've started to understand why the line developed, which is actually, it, it develops due to the same reasons why a coffee ring develops when you let a drop of coffee dry on your on your plate or at the bottom, bottom of your um, coffee cup. Uh, but we've now been able to use that to develop a whole new system of, of nanoparticle and polymer-based ribbons and mesoscale filaments, um, which are giving rise to some really new optical, mechanical, and electrical uh, material. So it's one of these things where we, at first, it was not anywhere near what we expected. Um, but for the last 12 years, we've started now developing this whole new um, area of mesoscale polymer and design. Um, so it's, it's pretty exciting, at least from my perspective. Great. Maybe I want to ask you about the growth and assembly. That's something also your focus, but what may be challenge when it comes to maybe if we speak about designing material that can have growth, for example, what are yeah, the in terms of handling growth, there, um, to me, one of the biggest challenges is understanding the transport um, problem of bringing new material to a, a growing system and how to convert energy from the, your environment into the material form that you want. Um, you know, I think as engineers, we can develop systems to bring certain materials, but nature seems to take what's, what it is around and use it in different ways. Um, and I think that is a challenge that with growth in particular, like if we really want materials to be able to grow um, is how to handle that transport issue um, and, and use materials in unexpected ways. The other, the other thing about growth is, is how to self-limit it. So to stop it at a given size or given shape. Um, and have the material maybe think, or the system work with the material to find the right size to handle the stresses that the material are developing under growth. So there should be natural balances there, but I think of how to engineer that, um, it's not really well understood yet. Um, so I think it's issues of transport and material energy conversion and self-limiting um, kind of growth and shape definition um, or size and, and shape definition that at least get me very interested um, in terms of mm -hmm. tackling those problems in the future.